Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Hi, I'm Eliza Bent. Well, Prof Bent, thank you so much for being with us. It's a great great pleasure. It's great to be here. And my standard-ish, opening question-ish, is-ish, what's dynamizing you, turning you on, alerting you, worrying you, perturbing you, getting you thinking these days? You know, there's a lot, a lot happening in our world. I feel like the thing, it's interesting that it, that the question runs the gamut between what's energizing and giving dynamism to also dragging of down. Um, Cause there's always a lot of everything in that. I mm. think like the main thing that's it's a new year, you know, and I keep saying 2024 is my year. And so this kind of like mantra and my year can mean many things. So, you know, it's a good catch all. That's been like a nice sort of place to return to Mm. when I'm having a great day or yesterday when I had to wait in a very long line for mysterious reasons at at the cvs cvs is not cbs the tv network for those outside the u.s cvs is a chain of pharmacies yeah i have never actually known what it stands for and i maybe it's community what does it stand for good question i'm just looking it up what does it stand for? consumer value stores Consumer <laughs> consumer value store. Oh, that's I, what it says here. It was called that in the 60s. Well, it's so been CVS all of my adult life. And yeah. Life. Yeah. So I think what we've got here is one of these things where the sign has dropped its referent and becomes more important, like IBM, you know. Yes. Which doesn't matter very much at all now, but did stand for international business machines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what will be another ESPN is a classic where it mm-hmm. was entertainment and sports programming network it's not that it's men shouting about sports 24-7 with a few women as well mm-hmm. yes yeah, so it's interesting the way these acronyms sometimes exceed their original KFC Kentucky Fried Chicken right you're not allowed to call it Kentucky Fried Chicken anymore are you it's just KFC now but we know what the what it stands for we know we were there damn it we were there we were there so yes See, it does have great value because they have a terrific coupon that they offer the the CVS pharmacy and i was very thrilled to use my coupon but it meant standing in line. It meant standing in line. Well, there was a very, I don't know if he was disturbed or or what exactly was going on, but there was a young man who was filming the, the, the checkout guy with his iPhone demanding to return something. And it was just, it was like one of those things where I thought, I hope he doesn't have a gun, you know? Yes, I mean, see, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be glib about it, but it yeah. it really is. It's quite distressing, you know, these modern times, and not knowing if someone, where someone is sort of located on on any given day. 
Absolutely. And when I lived in downtown New Orleans, I resided next to the CVS, where I spent quite a bit of time, as you do if you have an exciting, dynamic social life, like I obviously didn't. And there were some extremely strange people doing some extremely odd things. And the checkout staff was so tolerant and kind. I was yeah. amazed yeah. at their sense of dedication, their commitment. The, the checkout guy could not have been nicer as he was being filmed by this other and they were around the same age it was sort of like looking at two people with like maybe diverging paths like yes one was so warm and sure let me help you out and do you have this and this other fellow he just seemed a bit aggressive with his phone and i don't know why he was filming the transaction but could this be we've we've probably given far too much airtime to this so could this be performance art i you know that's a great question. If it was performance art, I remain un- unsure of of what the um, sort of takeaway or I guess perhaps it has me thinking about mental health and, ooh, is that a little cat? Yes, this is the... Basque militant, but Pacific as a militant, Chinguri, which in Basque means ant, which is, I think, a bit of a dumb name for a pussycat. So my younger daughter named him Naranja because he's sort of orange, but he's also vanilla and a few other things. Anyway, he is the pod cat. And he comes and goes a bit with the visuals because of the artificial background. Yeah. Yes. So the... And he's definitely a performer. Mm. No question Mm. about that. In terms of your own cultural production, your playwright and performer, what part does performance art play in your understanding of what you do? Great question, Toby. I was at a residency in, gosh, 2013, and a a playwright there it was a mixed mixture of us there were artists poets all kinds of people but a fellow playwright pulled me aside because there was a performance artist there and the playwright whispered to me what is, what is performance art and and i found myself struggling to define it you know i know it has to do with time and the body and and like I know what it's not, but it's hard to sort of pinpoint what it is. But I, I think, I think you ask a great question because, like, I, I did a show in the fall called "Penguin in Your Ear," and a a, co- a colleague of mine said, "I loved the part about you know this one part of the show that was real performance art," and I was like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> you know, like, like I no was one, so. Del- no one told me. <laughs> I was delighted that somebody was describing it that way, but also like it's it's I think you know it's it's so interesting to define a thing like or to, sometimes when you ask a person to define a thing, they get nervous. I know I was once asked to define what camp is, and I found myself kind of flailing in an attempt to describe it, but 
I don't think I've really answered your question at all. No, no, no. I mean, there are pat answers that give clear typological definitions of these concepts that work very well in academia and can be handy for students. Sure. They don't necessarily work terribly well for the people engaged in the form of cultural production or indeed for audiences. It varies a lot. Yes. And I think sometimes as a maker of things, Mm. perhaps the more you define something, Mm. you take out some essential mystery of of the making. Maybe that's a bit woo woo, but um, if that's the case, rah, rah. (laughs) (laughs) Woo woo, rah, rah. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about mystery. I mean, where to where to begin? I think, I think we. Oh, I, I hate to start a sentence. We live in a time when, but I'll go ahead and and I. I it seems as though we we live in a period where so many things are explained and explainable, and I just think that um. I think it's important to recognize mystery in life and in oneself and I think having a a bit of unknown or a bit of the unspeakable in the creation of it of a of a play of a novel of a song um is 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 important and it, it it's a it's a it's tricky to talk about hard to define things, but I, I think, yeah, I think a little bit of mystery. Um, and you, if you know too much what you're what you're making, it sort of zaps some of the um, possibility of discovery out of the doing. So when you're an actor. And you're performing in a play that you've written. How, what is that like? How different is it from when you're performing in something that somebody else wrote? Um, I think like when, if I'm acting in a piece that I've, what, Sorry, would you say it one more time? Like, how different is it to act in something I've written for myself versus something that someone's written for me? I think I'm a little bit more like, um, if somebody has written a thing that I am am performing, I want to be sure that I'm honoring their idea. Mm. Whereas if it's something that I've written, I'm a bit more like, um, I'm not as precious with, the text because I I think I trust myself like there's a certain amount of self-direction um that you know that that comes out and what about improvisation what part does that have to play do you think in good drama oh god well good drama I Dare dare we define that? I mean, Toby, let's get... How do you define good drama? 
Yes, quite. There are all kinds of aesthetic hierarchies in play when I introduce that kind of term, aren't there? Right. I think it can be something that has a big effect on a small number of people, a big effect on a large number of people. It can take different forms. It might be televisual. It might be street-based. It might be canonical. And if it's canonical, say, Eugene O'Neill or Shakespeare, then it can be re-enlivened, reinvigorated on the street or elsewhere. Uh, What is bad drama? Then again, that comes into aesthetic hierarchies. I think for me, it's probably when it's something that has been so endlessly reproduced in the same idiom Mm. with minimal change that it's lost its initial impetus and quality. So an example would be the way in which, for instance, network television in the United States has a great idea or somebody pitches a great idea to it. But instead of making six episodes in a year, they make 35. And so what might have been interesting becomes, for me, quite banal and uninteresting. Sorry for the long answer when (laughs) I'm here to talk about your thoughts on these things. No, I think think it's it's important stuff to distinguish. Like, like one thing that I um, am so interested in is how we talk about, like, the, just the ways we talk about art, even in, like in a casual way. Like, mm-hmm. do you recommend it? Is it good? Like, that's such a, like, basic sort of, you know, shorthand. And I'm interested in how students, like in class, it's often like, well, I really liked this, like liking something or not liking something or liking something being equated with good i'm like i find that that can be very tricky to then move into a conversation of like but what is the thing what was it trying to do what was it trying to accomplish um and like sometimes if if something is sort of like reviled in a classroom it can almost be easier to analyze it and pick it apart and then, of course, make aesthetic judgments. Whereas when something is like really like lauded and loved, it can be harder to analyze the thing because people almost want to protect that mm-hmm. mystery or pr- protect that love in a sense. Um, you asked a different question, though, regarding how... How to achieve acting ever. Um, there was an original question in here that then got into the distinction between good drama and. Yeah, who knows what it was. It's, it's lost in the in the sands of the riddles of the mysteries of time. Riddles of, riddles of the pod. The riddles of the pod. Yeah, I think Chinguri made a feline intervention and mm. you know, we were in a complex state after that. Can I ask you a little bit about teaching, Prof, because you've done lots of writing, editing, playwriting, performing, 
Now you're doing that in a university context. Is that new to you? Is that familiar? Is it different? What does it feel like? Yeah, it's a it's it's kind of like um it's a bit it's still a bit new. I I had been teaching as an adjunct uh at Brooklyn College and NYU back in my um New York City days and the adjunct is like the gig economy worker of academia and you're very replaceable, you're not paid very well. There's all kinds of talks around unionizing and um, you don't get health care in this case of an American, you know, adjunct lecturer. Um, and you're very much at the sort of will and whims of the administrative folks if, if they decide to um, give you a class or not. But so so landing at Northwestern um, was a gift in the sense that I, I'm now a full time uh lecturer um they changed the title i think i'm now assistant instructor it's the same thing it's just a different title um but i so i'm a step above adjunct but i'm not tenured um that's like a different echelon and yeah i mean like northwestern's a really great like it's been great i love getting paid (laughs) turns out it's great to get a paycheck I'm getting to teach really fun, interesting classes. I The colleagues that I have met that I've gotten to know a little bit are all super interesting people pursuing interesting, different, you know, careers than my own. Um, and the school has like resources. So like, like literally after we speak today, I, I'll apply to a grant and the I've gotten like little grants here and there. And it's amazing because I'm able, it's like in New York, I had this kind of opposite issue of like, I would be making things and constantly trying to figure out where to find the money for it. Now I know where to get the money from. It's Northwestern. And then it's figuring out, well, what can I make with this money? Okay, I have this much money. What can I make with it? So I made my first, I made, um, I I wrote a short film. I wrote and directed a, a, 12 minute short film. I made a web series um, with the grant money that I've gotten from Northwestern. And then this past year, I worked on my first stand up special. So that was all I've gotten to do so many like really exciting, cool firsts with the, um, you know, financial support that um, that the school can provide. And for people outside the U.S., Northwestern is a a very wealthy private university that is in Evanston, which is just outside Chicago in Illinois. It has an extremely high academic reputation, well-merited. Tell us about the stand-up special. Yeah. Um, what would you like to know about the stand-up special? Like broad broad strokes? What? Gee. Make me laugh. Oh God, no pressure. <laughs> I just laughed. Wah, wah. I think you made yourself laugh though. Um, which is which is still a kind of laughter. Um, the stand-up special is it, the title is Penguin in Your Ear. Um the yeah, I I did a bunch of different stand-up stuff. I, I 
I would say that stand-up has always been an interest of mine. And the modes in which I pursued it in New York were very, like, secretive, furtive, and with a great deal of ironic distancing. And upon moving to Chicago in... 2020 before the pandemic began I was I was sort of like maybe I'll reinvent myself you know maybe I'll really start to do more comedy and then obviously the pandemic shattered a lot of different modes um for all of us but but as things have kind of recalibrated I I started to to do a kind of stand-up in earnest this past year and um and developed material that then went into this show, which was is called Penguin in Your Ear. It's, it seems like ching, Chinguria. Notice we, I was mentioning penguins and... Yeah, he got hungry. He's been partially veganized. Oh. So wow. he, his dried food is vegan. And... I saw the look of universal skepticism cross your brows. I that there's so many thoughts that I have in one moment right now regarding your cat and your cat's diet. But please continue. According to the vet, it's okay that he's got vegan dried food, which he loves. He really does. Don't you, Mandon? He's my Mister. He's a he's a bossy boots. He insists on controlling everything. As long as he says the veterinarian, the other half of his food, the wet food, is raw or a carnival. Yeah. So little dead things from the water comprise the wet food, but pure veganism is mm. the dry side. Mm. That's wonderful. So the penguin, I'm going to say the word again, because in Spanish, of course, the word is very like the word in English. I don't know what it is in Basque. Tell us about where is the penguin in my ear and can I get it out and do I want to? Oh, mm, penguin in your ear. It's a phrase I would say to my dad when I was a kid. Um, I would ask him in a, in a British accent, is there a penguin in your ear? Good. Was your dad British? He's not. Um, <laughs> but what the heck? But speaking speaking in in voices that are not my own has always been of interest to me, and has always been an energizing. To go back to your initial question of what's you know giving you d dynamism or ener energy, like inhabiting other voices, has always. Um, really interested me so, so what stimulated you to say to your dad is there a penguin in your ear i i was a, like a little kid and i we were like i was like sitting on his lap and you know just like poking around in, at his head and i i loved penguins and i i said is there i just said is there a penguin in your ear and and my dad was i would have probably forgotten this but my dad really got quite a kick out of this bizarre question and this this phrase has sort of been repeated, you know, at different moments in my life, um, as as a as a sort of callback to 
our shared interest in strangeness and uh you know an a, an expression of of affection and love so um yeah and 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 i guess too like the the piece talks a bit about why i like penguins so much and it talks about life's second chapters i lived in new york a long time and um when i moved to chicago as I said, it was right at the start of, right before the pandemic began. So a lot of changes. I was in a relationship and that ended and a lot of different things sort of shifted in the move. Um, wow. So it was, it was quite a time, quite a time to be alive. And, um, and uh, yeah, I guess those are some, and of course, adjusting to the, uh, a more kind of full-time acad- academic life um is a part of the show as well so um great and one of the things getting back to the family that you emphasize is the nominative determinism of your last name say the the normative determ nominative determinism of your last name what does that mean sorry i'm being pompous Please don't be, I love, it's terrific. Please teach me. Well, no, I'm not teaching you, but it could be a stand-up line or a pick-up line, right? So nominative determinism is the idea that the name of something makes it happen, makes it be, right? So if your last name is Bent, you're going to be a bit bent. Now, in Britain, bent can mean corrupt, like a bent copper, is a corrupt police officer, but you use it, you describe yourself as your work as bent. As in I do. Off to one side from the norm, slightly different, veering Strongly around. inclined. So this is, so, you know, I think if you want an HBO special tomorrow, just say, I've got one, it's called Nominative Determinism, and I mean, it's going to sell like that. N- nominative. Nominative as in, you know, the name. Name. Determinism as in something that ensures X or or Z. Yeah. I mean, it's also just a great pun, too, entertainment. Like, my stand-up special for HBO might have been entertaining. I'm just writing it down, nominative determinism in the chat. Right. No, I wrote it down in Um, on a piece. Paper You've got it, but I want to write it down on a search engine and see if we can find out like where it comes from. Well, and regarding pickup lines, somebody sent me an email after Penguin in Your Ear that was like, Your name is unresolved. And I was like, Ew. But it felt like a kind of attempt of pickupery. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, well, it says here it was only invented 25 years ago. Um, in a book on polar explorations and an article on urology. Urology? Urology. Good Lord. It all goes back to toilets with me. We can talk about my play Toilet Fire. Well, I think we should, because I was going to ask you about that, because Mm -hmm. on your the website that I have for you, it looks as though you're sort of being strangled by vast amounts of toilet paper hanging down around you. Yeah. 
So give us the the full spiel on toilets because I think your public's waiting for it. I'd be so happy to talk about toilets. Um, I I was just in a in a student film with that in which I had to jump off of a toilet in a kind of dancerly way, but somehow my foot broke through the toilet seat and shattered and all this plastic flew everywhere, but it was captured on film. So now there is a tiny gif or jif. I'm never sure how to say that word, but it's of me jumping and then the, the plastic shattering. And I, I was joking with the student director. What is it with me and toilets? It always goes back to toilets. So I, um, so that's separate from toilet fire. Toilet fire is a, piece that I um, wrote and performed in 2015, which feels like a thousand and one years ago, but it, and it was a long simmering idea. Um, I have a lot of like different digestive uh, ailments and misadventures, if you will. And I, I thought, well, this, maybe I should write something about this. And I had never written anything for myself to perform. I had gone to, um, I got my MFA in playwriting. This where is I was writing. master's in fine arts. Yes, yes, master's in master's in fine arts, um, or in my case, fine farts. Um, but boom, boom. You know, I have, what can I say? I have a penchant for the scatological. My last name is Bent, and I certainly had a lot of raw material regarding. Um, you know, misadventures in the bathroom. And as I started to do all of this writing, you know, it was several years of kind of a residency here, a workshop there. And all of the writing kept going back to religious identity. And I was like, well, that's totally weird. What's that about? And um, and I was on a residency in Kansas and I went to... Uh, I went to a church and I realized that the way that I should proceed would, would be to make the show, give the show the structure um, of a Catholic mass with elements of uh, Judaism sort of woven into the tapestry of the evening. And so the play is one actor, me, with um, a pianist and it's essentially uh, a shit mass, if you will. And the audience is the congregation of um, participants celebrating this kind of fake holiday. And uh, I, I play several characters. Um, there's a series of confessions that happen. Um, and toward the end of the, of the evening, I, I drop the character characters I've been inhabiting and I portray Eliza who essentially gives a a sermon on why digestion and religious Catholic and Jewish Jewish re religious and cultural identity are so linked for me now um, before we talk about that I need to know when the toilet seat broke in the short film, did you hurt yourself and did your feet get wet? Yes. My foot got like this much of my, like up to here was soaked in the toilet water. 
Points to top of toes. It was, yeah, half, top third of, of foot. And I was very shocked. And I was, it really hurt quite a lot. And so, and the students, you know, this, these were nice, wonderful students. And they were like, oh no, are, are you okay? Are you okay? And I was like, I'm not okay. My foot really hurts. But they, I put some ice on it. And then I was totally fine. There, nothing was, nothing bled or was broken or anything. And I'm, uh, I'm back. Yeah. You're back live and you now have a slightly more normal relationship to the water closet or el, el water as they call it here so on to the this extraordinary play that you've described there are in long-standing and in many ways awful tensions between catholicism and judaism in terms of the horrific stereotyping that the catholic church historically used about Jewish folks. So it's a provocation to put the two together, isn't it? As you did. Um, I think from, from my lived experience, it was less about, uh, offering a a provocation and I guess more of like an, an embodied lived experience, um, of having those two forces in in my life. And how did people respond to the show? May I it was you? fascinating. It was fascinating to see. I always knew who was Jewish in the audience based on what was laughed at. I knew who was Catholic in the audience ah. based on what they laughed at. And I knew who had IBS irritable bowel syndrome based on what was so it was it was it was quite interesting and and there were some people that really did not like it you know there was like some person that um i'm gosh i'm forgetting so somebody was was very offended you know how dare you take this is irreligious this is blasphemous and that was quite hurtful for me to hear because it's really a very loving portrayal of these um these ancient religions, you know, uh, and I would say it's it's the piece is much more interested in sort of like sending up and um, kind of like honoring uh, who you are. Um, it's not like a critical takedown of problems in the Catholic Church, all of which there are many, but that's not the... Um, purpose of the of the piece understood could we turn towards some part of your professional life that i mentioned briefly but you haven't really talked about much to us today and that's the editing and the writing oh sure could you talk to us a bit about that the if you like the journalism yeah yeah that feels really like in the past um it's interesting because just a few days ago i sent a pitch to a friend whose call i silenced a few minutes ago um but no no like um yeah i i i was a i was a, a writer freelance writer and an editor for um for many years uh and i 
I worked first at Elle magazine, the fashion magazine, um, as an editorial assistant. And then I went on to uh, write for American Theater Magazine, um, where I was senior editor by the time I I left. And um, yeah, that's that feels like that's been put to bed, but it was a very formative, um, great, like background to have. It gave me so much access to people. And it's so like, it's interesting having this chit chit chat with you. Um, cause like even five years ago, I would have been even more terse in my responses. Cause I, I, I much prefer to ask the questions. Journalists are the worst interviewees, always, always. When you go to the pub with them, they might rabbit on about all sorts of things and tell you how incredibly important they are. But if you're actually interviewing them, no. It's very hard to get them to agree to do it and very hard to get much out of them. So that does show that you've sloughed that off a bit. It's interesting. Attempting. <laughs> do you miss it? No. Now, being a professor of theatre, you can dedicate yourself more fully to what really matters. Is that what I'm thinking, hearing? Uh, sure. You can go right ahead and think that. No, I, I don't mean to be, I don't need to be coy. I, I don't miss being a journalist at all. I think for me, it was always a conflict of interest. People saw me as a means of potentially getting an article. Will you write about me? Will you write about my theater? What can you do for me? And I've, I felt like a, like a kind of like a big fake go. And it, it was always, um, there was always a tension in also being an artist. And so to, to leave that behind and to pursue art making and just like, you know, I feel like less of like a bifurcated personality and I'm already a Gemini. So it's already a lot to contend with, but having, having that like journalism patina of, you know, it, it was, it just, it got to be too tricky because people I think are very reticent to see a person as a whole thing, you know? What does it mean to be a Gemini? What's your astrological sign? I'm not a person with belief invested in this, but I'm a Leo. Spoken like just spoken exactly like a Leo. No, I'm 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 joking. No, uh, the the sign of Gem Gemini comes from Gemelli twins, so it's a sort of like split personality is often the way that it's uh, you know there's like a dual a, a um, constant dualism, um, and so as a in that period of my life when I was writing for American theater. Um, but des but very desperately seeking and eager to become a, a artist of my own repute. Um, mm. It just it was like 
I felt like it wasn't like, I felt like I was sort of living a lie a little bit or that I had to really keep the artist part extremely private because I didn't want anyone to think that I was, you know, trying to climb some other ladder. And Prof, and that was very, that was very tedious after, you know, no, I get it. I get it. We're almost at the end of our time together, but I have two more Ooh. questions for you, if I may. Please. And then I'd like to throw it to you to add anything you want Great. to. You know, we might devote the rest of our time together to talk about CVS and other acronyms we love, <laughs> but probably not. So <laughs> my, my first question is, I'm 18, I've arrived at Northwestern, or I meet you in Chicago at the Art Institute or wherever it might be, or Second City or whatever, and I say to you, Prof, I want to become <laughs> Prof, I want to become an actor. I want to become a dramaturg. I want to become a writer. What do you say? That's terrific. How can I help? You don't say, shut up and go and get a paper round. Not that there are such things anymore. <laughs> First of all, I guess I guess no one calls me prof, which so I'm I'm amused by that. But no, I listen. I think like, is it the easiest thing? No, but we don't necessarily people that shouldn't be doing that figure that out generally. Generally, you know, pretty pretty quickly. And the people that should be doing it, well, it might take them a long time, but they'll get there eventually. I mean, I was so repressed for so long around any real desire to pursue a life in in theater or in comedy. And, and it's been so much easier to just like admit that that's, that's what I love and that's what I want to do. So um, if an, if an 18 year old already has that, you know, I think I, I will say this. I think I am more interested in the 18 year old who doesn't know what they want to do yet, or who maybe isn't willing to admit that they know what they want to do yet. Cause that was me. I studied philosophy, my four years of undergrad and did like, I, I made it so hard for myself. Why, why did I do that? But I was doing theater like on the side and in these, you know, more harder than they had to be capacities that were wonderful. And I, I don't regret those at all, but it was, yeah, it was just, uh, that was my, that was my struggle. And I'm going to take happened. in two questions, even though I said please, I please. one more. So <clears throat> the, the question I originally had in mind to conclude with, but as I say, I've got one other as well, is there's a lot of controversy at the moment about, what comics should and shouldn't be making fun of. Mm. I'm thinking of controversy circling around jokes about trans people, for example. Yeah. But there are plenty of other examples we could come up with, but they have been quite present in the world recently. And some comics answer this by saying the only test that matters is whether it's funny. Or they say comedy works because it's edgy and it's touching on something difficult. So therefore you're going to offend people. 
those are a couple of answers that I've heard. I'm wondering what your position is on this. On what is funny or on what is allowed to be included in a set or specifically around like if a non-trans person can make a joke about? A, B and C, all of the above. Gosh, I I, I think it's a very like, I think it's a pretty like nuanced conversation. And I, I think part of, it's hard to just like, give an A, B, or C reply because it's such a, like, so much of it has to do on the person, on the content of the joke, on the person saying the joke, on the setup, but also on who the audience is. Like, I, I remember talking with somebody about, I was talking with a gay artistic director and he was saying how the same exact comedy set in an audience of other gay people. He was like on a, on a cruise or something. And it was like with other, like maybe gay families and he's married to a man and they have kids and whatnot. And, but he was saying like, I, his position was, I knew everyone, I knew that this, I was in a room of allies that I was like with my people and that I could laugh about this stuff in a different way than if I had been on land and in a sort of like mixed club. And I just, I think that that's so important to kind of think about and consider. And I think a lot of, a lot of what I see in at open mics is not funny (laughs) and not because it's, and a lot of it is like, it's, it's wildly misogynistic. It's like incredible incredibly like racist anti-semitic transphobic there's so much of that happening and i think when something is actually funny it, it it's such a taste thing you know and so it's just i don't i'm very reticent to say only you know if you can only joke about your own identity like I just think that that's such a dreary way to like live in the world and to only be able to speak from your own experience just feels so limiting and like totally like cuts off imagination. And I also think you have to be thoughtful and have a consideration of what is the joke who are, you know, punching down is, is really never it's dehumanizing for the people that you're punching down, but it also dehumanizes you when you do that. So um, I am very keen on comedy as celebration, satire that has teeth, but that ultimately serves to lift us up, to liberate and to, um, to free us. So get your foot out of the system. Be uplifted. Yeah, I just think it's easy to punch down on on mm-hmm. on marginalized groups, but to me, most of the funniest comedians are actually from marginalized communities, at least that I've witnessed and experienced. So, I think that is just another thing to consider in in what feels like a much larger conversation than the than the minutes we have left. No, but thank you because I think that was both concise and brilliant. Very helpful to me. So, my truly, brilliant. Thank you. My truly last question before I 
throw to you is about philosophy. So mm. you studied it, it was your major, and you said, I don't really know why. Is there anything you learnt in it that is of value in everyday life, in dramatic life, in professional life? Oh, my God. I mean, philosophy is what taught me to have a good conversation, like the one we've had. Uh, a subtle shout out to my dad, who I always joke around with when it comes to philosophy and nice conversations. No, I, philosophy was an, it was an immensely valuable thing for me to study. When I was 18, I didn't have doubts about my interest in theater. I had doubts about the depth of my intellect. And so studying philosophy was a huge like confidence boost that I could wrestle with ideas and write you know big papers and of course as the as the you know repressed artist that I was I would ask my teachers oh can I can I do a creative approach you know can I can I write my paper about um Nietzsche and Hegel I want to set it like in a diner and they're talking with a waitress you know I would be writing these plays this was all so much well before I'd even considered writing plays you know, of my own, but I was writing them in the form of papers. So I think a lot about the philosophy ideas that I came into contact with in those, in those four years. And, and that was extremely yeah. valuable. I know. I, I was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar. I was working as a waitress in a donut shop. Along came Friedrich and Georg. I love it. So Prof, Eliza, over to you. Are there things you'd like to subtract from or add to what we've discussed? Maybe maybe we could take out some of the CVS banter. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I don't know if listeners will necessarily want to hear that. I'm curious about what venceremos means. Oh, it, <laughs> on my sweatshirt, it means we shall overcome. Ah. And it, it is above a picture of Salvador Allende the democratically elected and CIA ejected president of Chile in yes. the 1970s. Beautiful. No, I, this was so fun and unexpected. I'm, it was delighted. It was a delight to meet you and, and zoom talk with you. So. Thank you so much. Oh, it now says your name. I changed it. I changed oh. it when you were. Oh, when I was growing up, rabbiting on about it. Yes. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much, Prof. Eliza. Thank you. You'll let me know when it's live and everything? You bet. Or as they say in the Midwest, yar, you betcher. Ah!